So please welcome writer, professor, and good friend, Sherilyn Eiffel. Thank you, Carla. It's always a pleasure to um, <clears throat> be asked to, uh, to introduce great speakers who come to the library. I think the last introduction I did was of Annette Gordon-Reed, uh, the National Book Award winner, who wrote the book, The Hemingses of Monticello. And um, it was an exciting afternoon where we had an opportunity to have some real candid discussion. And I'm hoping this evening that we'll do the same. You are really in for a treat. Um, let me dispense with the um, biographies, and then I'll tell you something about these two um, authors. So Paul Butler, who's to my immediate right, is a former federal prosecutor and the country's leading expert on jury nullification. And as a part of our conversation, I'll have him explain what that means and what his theories are about jury nullification. He provides commentary for CNN, NPR, and even Fox News. Uh, he's been featured on 60 Minutes and National Public Radio. He's a graduate of Yale University and Harvard Law School. He uh, served as a federal prosecutor after graduation from law school with the Department of Justice, where he specialized in public corruption. He, his prosecutions include a U.S. senator, three FBI agents, and several other law enforcement officials. While at the Department of Justice, he also served as a special assistant U.S. attorney prosecuting drug and gun cases. An award-winning law professor, Butler now teaches in the areas of criminal law, civil rights, and jurisprudence at George Washington University Law School, where he also this year serves as associate dean for faculty development. Is that right? Uh, Michelle Alexander is a longtime civil rights advocate and litigator. She was the 2005 Soros Justice Fellow. She served for several years as director of the Racial Justice Project at the ACLU of Northern California, which spearheaded a national campaign against racial profiling. She's clerked for Justice, uh, Supreme Court Justice Harry Blackman. She directed the Civil Rights Clinic at Stanford Law School. And she, too, appears regularly as a commentator on CNN, NBC, and other television stations. She's currently a professor at Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. So those are the um, actual bios so that you can understand that these people come to you prepared and credentialed and all that good stuff. Let me say a few words about uh, both Paul and Michelle that I think is very important to frame our discussion. Um, I need you to understand that the path that these two have taken and the books that they are both presenting, uh, Paul Butler's book, Let's Get Free, A Hip-Hop Theory of Justice, uh, and Michelle Alexander's book, the New Jim Crow, Mass Incarceration in the Age of Colorblindness, um, that these two books and the steps that they've taken um, have set them apart from the average work that law professors do. They have decided to take up the call to do what I think is the job of those of us who have the privilege of serving in the academy, of teaching, uh, who went to school and know a little something, and that is to take up the charge to be public intellectuals to use what we have learned, to use the skills that we have been given and our experiences. And for those of us who have been uh, champions and advocates of social justice uh, and equality in the law, to use that to turn a hard, sometimes jaundiced, um, but always critical eye at the work of the law in our society. And to give back to you, the public, the benefits of our analysis, what we've learned, what we think, and most of all, what we think are solutions to some of the thorniest problems, particularly as they relate to issues of equality and justice. Michelle and Paul have taken up this charge, and they have particularly focused on the issue of the criminal justice system 
as it relates to race. As you all know, we live here in the city of Baltimore, and so these issues are never far from our minds, they're never far from our discussions, and they're never far from our thoughts. But too often, these discussions round the same loop, how many murders we've had in the city each year, what was the latest shooting, um, you know, what's happening in the court with regard to snitching, which judge is up for election, uh, and we very rarely get the opportunity to sit down and talk about how we in Baltimore fit into the national narrative about race and criminal justice. We need to begin to understand that we are a cog in a wheel, and both Paul Butler and Michelle Alexander come to us with fresh insights, with fresh information that you need to know, and with fresh ideas about how to resolve the crisis that is killing and choking many of our communities. And so with that framework, I ask you to give a warm Baltimore Charm City welcome to Professors Paul Butler and Michelle Alexander. Okay, <clears throat> so let's get started. I want to start with Paul Butler. Um, because uh, I've had the experience of reading his book in various public locations, snatching a chapter here and there. Uh, and I often find myself shaking my head or busting out laughing uh, as I'm reading the book, in part because uh, Paul is such a skilled writer and he uses his own experiences to uh, help us understand what's happening in the criminal justice system. And so I thought it might be helpful if we had Professor Butler share um, right from the beginning of the book, a, a discussion about kind of what set him on the path away from being a career prosecutor, which is the path that he was on, to becoming um, not just an academic, but someone who was committed to focusing on resolving the inequities and problems in the criminal justice system. Uh, and the experiences that he relate um, come from his own interaction with the criminal justice system. So I thought you might share that. Sure. Well... Uh, first of all, it's great to be here. Thank you to the Pratt Library for um, putting on this event, and especially um, uh, thanks to my good friend, Cheryl Lynn, for uh, being our host this evening. I've known Cheryl, since, Cheryl Lynn since we were both in, in law school, and she also has done such great work in, in this beautiful struggle, as the hip-hop artist put it, uh, for justice. So it's, it's an honor to be on the same stage with you and with Michelle whose book is, is just off the hook. So I'd highly recommend uh, The New Jim Crow. It's, it's such an important way of thinking about these issues and, and tying them to history. Uh, so anyway, what, what happened to me? Um, I was a prosecutor. Uh, I represented the government in criminal court. Um, during the time that I had the most high-profile case in the Justice Department, I was prosecuting a United States senator for public corruption. I got arrested and prosecuted for a crime that I didn't commit. It was a, a, a silly little misdemeanor, a Fred and Barney dispute about a, a traffic, uh, about a parking space. Uh, the judge joked during the trial, this is a dispute about uh, a traffic space between two people, neither one of them owns a car. <laughs> And it was true, but it was um, just a silly little dispute. Um, but the bottom line was I didn't do it, and I went to trial in order to prove my innocence. And cutting to the chase, 
Things worked out fine for me. But the reason that things worked out fine is that, A, I had the best lawyer in the city. Uh, I had the best lawyer in the city because I could afford her. I had the means to, to pay for her. Things worked out fine for me because my connections, my legal skills, I had literally prosecuted people in the same courtroom where I was being prosecuted. So in addition to knowing how to prepare my testimony, um, I knew how to, to look, how to act. In DC, it's a big thing. Defense attorney said, you gotta have your shoes shine if you're a defendant. Um, so I knew all that stuff. Um, I had social status. I had legal skills. So those are the reasons that I was found not guilty. The jury took less than five minutes to, to say that I was not guilty. People still say it's the uh, shortest verdict they've heard of in the Superior Court in the District of Columbia. Uh, one other reason why things worked out for me, because I was innocent. But when I thought about the various reasons, that seemed kind of far down on the list. And, and it made me question some of the cases that I prosecuted. You know, defendants always say, oh, the cops are lying. You don't know. Let me tell you something. Cops lie. Not all of them, but some of them. The cop in my case got in the stand and just lied. And I was like, oh my God. You know, and it shouldn't, you're thinking, and you're right. It shouldn't have taken this. Um, it shouldn't have taken this experience in order to, to, for me to learn. And certainly you can't be an African-American prosecutor and not from jump question, have questions about how fair the system is. Um, but for better or for worse, there's nothing like it happening to you. I, I wish you would just elaborate a little bit more about this way in which um, you summed up the story, but you know, in the book you talk about the trial. It wasn't fait accompli that you would be acquitted. Um, and you talked about the ways in which, within the criminal justice system, uh, the, the benefits of class in many ways, the fact that you were educated. As a matter of fact, one of the funniest stories in the book was when you were about to be arrested, you told the officer that you worked for the Department of Justice, and he looked at your ID, smiled, and said, then you probably know this, you have the right to remain silent, right? <laughs> right. Uh, and, and read you your rights. Um, it was, in many ways, the great equalizer. And in the course of the trial, it wasn't entirely clear. You talked for example, about your testimony before the lunch break and how that oh, was sure. working against you. And I wondered if you might share that, for example. So 90% of people who are charged with crimes end up pleading guilty. And, and our justice system is, is set up basically like an assembly line to lead to your pleading guilty. So at every stage, you're discouraged from actually going to trial. And I had the means to go to trial. I had the confidence um, in the system and in my ability to, to prevail. But man, did people try to turn me around. Uh, you know, they offered me diversion, which is this um, program where if it's your first arrest, uh, you do community service and then the uh, charge gets dismissed. And I actually considered that for a while. Imagine how embarrassing it is. I was the only African-American man in my section in the Justice Department, and the only person in the history of the section ever to have been arrested. Now, as Michelle's work um, teaches us, that's not a coincidence that I'm the only black man and the only person to be arrested. But man, was it embarrassing. So I actually considered going to diversion. 
Um, but my boss told me, if you take diversion, everybody's going to think you're guilty. And, and I couldn't have that. So the lead prosecutor on my case was an African-American man, uh, a senior African-American prosecutor. Uh, there was a, a, another young white man who was the, the, the second chair, but uh, I hated the, the black prosecutor the most. And so when he was cross-examining me, everything just came back. Just the whole injustice of the 15 months that it took my case to go to trial. And I let him have it. I kind of spit my answers back at him. I was sarcastic. I was defensive. I was indignant. And there was a break. And my lawyer took me aside and she said, Paul, if you keep talking like that, you're going to get convicted. They're going to think that you did it. Chill out. So came back, was meek, was mild, um, was responsive, but tried not to let my anger come through, you know. We black men have a, a thing about anger. At least that's our perception, right? So we have to try to mask it. So um, that's what I did. And again, things worked out fine for me. But the, you know, the interesting thing was just all these things that were not relevant to my innocence that were important in my case working out. And so many other people don't have the advantages of that. There's a, a great review, real quickly. There's a really interesting review of, of my book coming out. But, by James Foreman, um, the son of the late congressman who teaches at Georgetown. Um, he really likes the book, but says there's a problem with people like Butler and Skip Gates being the, the spokespersons for injustice in the uh, criminal justice system, because these are privileged men. Things are going to work out fine for them regardless. And, and that's true to a degree. Um, so I don't at all claim that my experience is, is representative. It's just a thing that happened to me that, that changed the way that I look at these issues. Thank you, Paul. Michelle, Paul used the words assembly line a minute ago. And uh, your book, The New Jim Crow, is maybe one of the most chilling I've read in a long time. Uh, everything that I know about the criminal justice system in the United States and mass incarceration in the United States was pulled together in one place. Uh, and it's tough to take. Uh, and I wondered if you could just share with us um, statistically um, just some of the information about incarceration in the United States, and even a little, go a little further in a little bit of how we got here. Yeah, well, <clears throat> you know, I think for many of us, you know, we think we know how the criminal justice system works. You know, shows like Law and Order <laughs> portray a criminal justice system that may be flawed, but works most of the time. And, um, in the course of doing the research for this book, I had already reached a point where I had come to believe that the mass incarceration of poor people of color in the United States amounts to a new racial caste system. I had already gotten to that place in my understanding of how the system works and functions in our society based on my years litigating racial profiling cases and working on issues of drug policy and trying to support <coughs> families and individuals who are struggling um, once they were released from prison to survive on the outside. But even so, when I began my research, 
I started uncovering facts that stunned even me. And for example, um, today, there are more African Americans under correctional <laughs> control in prison or jail, on probation or parole, than were enslaved in 1850, a decade before the Civil War began. More black folks are under correctional control today than were enslaved. That's how vast the system of control has become. You know, we're told often that you know, the explosion in our prison system is about crime and crime rates. Not true, not true. Our prison population has quintupled, not doubled, not tripled, quintupled in a few short decades <coughs> due primarily to a drug war that was waged at a time when drug crime was actually on the decline, not on the rise. Most people think that the war on drugs was you know, launched, was announced in response to the emergence of crack cocaine in inner city communities across America. Not true. The war on drugs was officially declared by President Ronald Reagan, the current drug war, was officially declared by President Ronald Reagan in 1982, a couple years before crack hit the streets first in Los Angeles and then began to spread um, to cities across America. The drug war was declared not in response to drug crime, but instead in response to racial politics. The drug war was part of the Republican Party's kind of grand strategy, which was openly discussed at that time amongst kind of political strategists, part of the grand strategy of trying to appeal to poor and working class whites who were disaffected by the civil rights movement, resentful of busing, desegregation and affirmative action, folks who used to be part of the Democratic New Deal coalition, but Republican Party strategists found that they could appeal to that block of voters through racially coded appeals on crime and welfare. It was no longer you know, socially acceptable to use explicitly racial appeals anymore. But these strategists found that if they use racially coded political appeals around crime and welfare, promising to get tough on them, to crack down on them, right? A group that was not so subtly defined in the media as being black and brown, that they could persuade those poor and working class white voters to defect from the Democratic Party and switch to the Republican Party, known as the Southern Strategy. And it worked like a charm. The drug war was part of the Republican Party's making good on its promise to get tough on them by declaring a drug war focused almost exclusively in communities of color. Now, you know, they got lucky. A few years after the drug war was announced, crack hit the streets in inner city communities, and the Reagan administration actually hired staff whose job it was to publicize crack babies, crack users, crack dealers in inner city communities in order to saturate the media with images of black and brown drug dealers and drug users, hoping that these images would bolster public support for the war and persuade Congress to devote millions of more dollars to turn the drug war you know, from a rhetorical war into a literal one. 
And that's how it began. Congress began passing harsh mandatory minimum sentences, you know, handing down drug sentences that are longer than the sentences murderers receive in most other countries in the world. And billions of dollars were invested in a drug war waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, even though studies have shown consistently now for decades that contrary to popular belief, people of color are no more likely to use or sell or sell illegal drugs than whites. Now that defies kind of our basic stereotypes about who drug dealers are. When we think about drug dealers, we typically think of, you know, a black kid standing on the street corner with his pants hanging down, right? Drug dealing certainly happens in the ghetto, but it happens everywhere else in America as well. You know, white folks in Kansas who want to get their meth or, you know, their pot, they don't drive to the hood to get their drugs. They get it from somebody down the road. Drug dealing happens everywhere in America, most openly perhaps on college campuses. You know, people think that the open drug markets can be found, you know, in the hood, and that's why law enforcement efforts are concentrated there. But if you want to round up folks quick for drug offenses, you can raid frat houses and universities across the country. You know, the drug war has been waged almost exclusively in poor communities of color, not because drug use or drug sales are more frequent there, but because this war from the get-go had an enemy that was racially defined. And as a result of this drug war, we now have millions of people who have been branded felons for you know, nonviolent drug-related offenses, branded felons, and then ushered into a permanent second-class status in which they are denied all of the rights that we supposedly left behind. Once you're branded a felon, you can be denied the right to vote. You're automatically excluded from juries. You can be legally discriminated against in employment, housing. In fact, you're barred for a minimum of five years from public housing once you're released from prison. Discriminated in housing, employment, access to education, public benefits, all the forms of discrimination we supposedly left behind in the Jim Crow era, suddenly legal again once you've been labeled a felon. So that's why I say we haven't ended racial caste in America. We've merely redesigned it. Thank you for that. Well, let me just first of all say that in Maryland, you can vote. We did, were successful in changing our law several years ago, and other states are working on those initiatives as well. Would you just um, tell us, Michelle, how many people are incarcerated in the United States? And can you could just give us very briefly a comparison of that to, say, all of Europe? Well, I don't know the exact figures for all of you, but, you know, in the United States, there's more than two million people who are behind bars today. Now, you know, the rates of incarceration that we have in the United States dwarf every other country in the world. And no other country in the world incarcerates such a large percentage of its racial and ethnic minorities. You know, even South Africa, at the heart of apartheid, didn't incarcerate um, as many um, black and brown folks as we do in the United States today. Um, there is really kind of no parallel, <laughs> no comparison to what the United States is doing today in terms of the mass incarceration of poor people of color. Um, Paul, and I guess I'm going to ask you this also, Michelle. Talk 
a little bit about what you see and what you describe in the book as the effect on, on communities of this phenomenon that Michelle has described that begins with the war on drugs and as you say in your book is permeates our policy, our, our criminal drug policy. Um, take it from the other side, out of the prison, into the community. What's the effect on the community? So um, Michelle talked about all these people doing time. So almost two and a half million people, unprecedented. We U.S. has 5% of the world's population, 25% of the world's prisoners. One in three young black men has a case, either in, in prison, on probation or parole, or awaiting trial. Baltimore, that number is actually substantially higher. So a bunch of people doing time, it turns out billions more doing time on the outside. Women. Children, partners. Um, their time is as hard almost as the women and men who are, are locked up. So what's the effect if we focus on, on one community, the African-American community? Well, what's the effect of having one-third of its young men locked up? Think about what that does to our families, what it does to our neighborhoods. Um, one important factor is it makes people not respect the criminal justice system, right? Because it's telling us something about our young men that we know isn't true. One in three of our young men don't deserve to be in a cage. They don't deserve that as the social policy for things that are the predictable consequences of messed up schools, of no jobs, of no health care if you can't afford it. Our policy is being locked up. And so when our government sends us this message, we have a choice. We can believe what the criminal justice system is saying about the people who we know and love, or, or we can believe our own experiences. And people, sociologists will tell you, whenever it's a choice between the law and their experience, they're always going to go with their experience. And so to do that, we have to reject parts of the criminal justice system. And that leads to results like people not wanting to cooperate with the police even when they should. Um, people not liking the dope boys on the corner, but not trusting the police to get them out. And finally, well, I mean, there's a long list, but the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll mention um, is the effect on, on safety. Um, you know, what, what happens when you take a 19-year-old nonviolent offender and lock them up with rapists and murderers and thieves? It's like sending them to a finishing school for crime, right? It's hard to, to come out better than when you went in, in part because we've gotten away from rehabilitation. It's just like this, this cage where we lock up people. And, and so these people get out. 600,000 people a year leave prison. And, and when they go out, they get out, they don't move to Georgetown in D.C. or DuPont Circle. They move back to the hood, right? the communities that they came from. Um, and they're not better. And so a lot of people are understanding now that there's this tipping point. When too many people are locked up, it makes our neighborhoods less safe. So, Sherlyn, I'm not going to even go into the $60 billion a year we spend and the effect that that has. What if we use that money for, for health care, job training, for education? Uh, but in short, there's all these horrific consequences for people doing time not only on the inside, but on the outside. You, you also said something in the book, Paul, about the tipping point. Like if you lock up too many people, 
it's almost like you desensitize people to the idea of being locked up until you, you end up making people believe that prison is inevitable and therefore it doesn't have the stigma, right? Or sure. You know, the wild thing is, um, when we look at racial disparities in criminal justice, and when we look at now the number of black men who are locked up compared to the number of white men, the racial disparities are getting bigger. Um, for criminal justice, 1954, man, that was the good old days. I wish we had it that good now, because then the disparity was just like three to one. Now it's eight to one. So what is the reason for that? It's not, as Michelle indicated, it's not because crime's going up. When the crime rate goes up, we do lock up more people. The problem is when the crime rate goes down, we lock up more people. When the crime rate stays the same, we lock up more people. And so it turns out that there's this tipping point. Most criminologists say that, yes, there is a relationship between locking people up and the crime rate. But once you reach a certain point, you have a negative effect. When too many people are locked up, that means that crime goes up in part because of this effect that you end up locking up all these nonviolent offenders with violent offenders. Um, they learn how to be really good crooks when they're locked up and they come out and victimize people. So in cities like New York, actually New York State, that have safely reduced the prison population, California is doing the same thing now, mainly by um, selectively letting out nonviolent offenders. Guess what happens to crime? It goes down. Michelle, you had uh, said at one point in your book you were talking about President Obama's speech. Um, it may have been when he was on the campaign trail. I can't remember because I think he's given the same one a couple times or variations of it. Well, the Father's Day speech. And uh, he was talking about absent fathers. And you said um, you don't recall the president ever asking where those missing fathers might be. Um, so can you say something about the effect on communities? Yeah. Um, the Father's Day speech I referenced was when... Barack Obama was on the campaign trail, you might remember, and he uh, was, you know, locked in a battle <laughs> um, for the election, and he had recently become the first, you know, Democratic nominee for president, and he, on Father's Day, um, gave a speech in which he really condemned um, all the missing black fathers, saying that they were AWOL and behaving like boys instead of men, and that they had abandoned their families and their responsibilities. And I was fascinated by the media coverage following the speech because no one asked, where are these missing black fathers? Where, where are they? There was a lot of finger wagging you know, going on about all the missing black fathers, but no one was talking about where they might be. And the reality is, is that today, um, well, I should say a black child born during slavery had a greater chance of being raised by both parents than a black child born today. And that fact has a lot to do with the fact that black and brown men have been carted off in mass, in mass and imprisoned, um, and they weren't walking out on their families voluntarily, right? Many of them were taken away in handcuffs. And once released, branded felons, and often unable to find work, to support and contribute to a family, you know, 
For much of humankind, what it's meant to be a family is for both people to contribute in some way. Well, the role men have traditionally played in families has become off limits for, for millions of black men. Today, black men who are branded felons have an incredibly difficult time finding employment. Some surveys indicate that 70% of employers won't even consider hiring someone who's been labeled a drug felon, even if it's a nonviolent, even if it's a nonviolent drug offense. 70%. You know, the research shows that about 70% of people released from prison return within three years. And the majority of those who return do so in a matter of months because the hurdles for making it on the outside are so great. Not only, you know, does every application from, you know, Burger King clerk to accountant have that box you gotta check if you've ever been convicted of a felony and employers are free to discriminate against you. But like I said, public housing is off limits to you for a minimum of five years. And in fact, public housing agencies are encouraged to discriminate against criminals and suspected criminals for the rest of their lives. So you can't get a job, there's no housing, what are you to do? Well, actually, what the government expects you to do is pay thousands of dollars in fees and fines. You know, in many states today now, when you're released from prison, you're expected to pay back the cost of your imprisonment. So when you're released, you're expected to pay back court costs, court processing, you know, expensive fees, fines, accumulated child support while you've been in prison. Now get this. Up to 100% of your wages can be garnished to pay back the cost of these fees and fines, back child support, cost of your imprisonment. So here you are, one of the lucky few, you managed to get a job, right? You actually get a job. And then up to 100% of your wages can be garnished? What's the system designed to do? Well, the system is designed to send folks right back to prison, and that is, in fact, what happens the overwhelming majority of the time. Even for those who are struggling mightily to play by the rules, right, to do right by their children, find that the system is designed in a way where it's set up to ensure their failure. What I find most remarkable, though, is that, you know, the research actually indicates that despite all of this, black fathers, you know, men who are separated from their children, Black men do more to maintain relationships with their children than men of any other racial or ethnic group. So this stereotype of like the terrible black father, right, that's perpetrated in the media and reinforced, the research suggests that actually black men are the most likely to try to maintain relationships with their children after separation or divorce or imprisonment than any other racial or ethnic group. So we have a system today that ensures that huge percentage of the African-American community is trapped in a permanent second-class status. In fact, in some cities like Chicago, if you take into account prisoners, nearly 80% of working-age African-American men have criminal records and are thus subject to legalized discrimination for the rest of their lives. These folks are trapped in a racial undercast, you know, not class, caste, 
a group of people defined largely by race who are trapped in a permanent second-class status by law for life. And it's had a devastating impact on communities, you know, not just breaking up families, but contributing to the economic collapse of um, poor communities of color. They're already suffering, you know, severe joblessness or as a result of deindustrialization. The fact that such a large percentage of African Americans have been branded felons and are excluded from the mainstream economy um, really ensures the cycle of perpetual marginality. I want to turn our conversation in a moment to how to interrupt some of what you've described, which sounds so inevitable, because certainly we've done a lot of work on this here in Maryland, and there are other states engaged in these initiatives also. One way of stopping the cycle, for example, is addressing what gets people back in prison, which are these probation violations, this, this intense supervision that people simply can't keep up, where you have to come in and do the, the drug test and come in and see the parole officer and so forth, thinking about how to lengthen the time so that people are not burdened by that, so that missing that visit doesn't end up getting you back in. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about how to work with licensing agencies on the job front. We've been doing that here in Maryland. We had a great director of labor and licensing who's now the um, assistant attorney general for civil rights of the United States, Tom Perez, who when he was here worked very hard on undermining things like um, the refusal of licensing agencies to give barber licenses, a, a, a venerable profession in the black community to ex-offenders, regardless of their offense. So those things at the state level can, with the appropriate you know, pushing and clarity and thinking, be interrupted you know, one by one. It takes a lot of work. But I do want us to have an opportunity to talk about solutions. It would be remiss if, in the city of Baltimore, the, the home of the Stop Snitching video, we didn't spend a moment talking about the issue of snitching. And I raise it because um, you all really bring a very interesting and important perspective about the way in, about what you kind of regard as the importance of the criminal justice system letting go of its reliance on snitches, how it actually undermines justice. Uh, and since we tend to have lots of conversations about stitching, snitching and stop snitching here in Baltimore, I really wanted you both, if you could, to address that particular phenomenon and what you think is its corrosive effect in the criminal justice system. Sure. So, so snitches are paid witnesses. There are people who inform against others because they're either being given cash money or they get a break in their own criminal case. Government says, well, if you tell them Johnny, then we, we'll, we won't charge you, even though we know you're guilty. And the main problem with snitches is that they can't be trusted. Their testimony is unreliable. So in the chapter that I have where I discuss snitches, I tell the story of this grandmother in... Um, Atlanta, 88-year-old um, woman who a snitch said, oh, there's drugs being sold from that house. Three undercover police officers start tearing down the door. Poor lady scared to death. She has a gun. Um, she takes it out. They shoot her 38 times. And then, after they kill her, they put her body in handcuffs. And they get another snitch to say, oh, there were drugs being sold from that house. Well, they got caught. But that's just one example. About half of the people uh, who have been innocent, but who have been executed, they, those executions result were the result of snitch testimony. So there's a lot of concern about just how reliable it is when you're a paid witness um, 
And the problem is, no one, you know, sometimes those are your witnesses. I'm a former prosecutor. The people who know the most about what's going down often know it because they're right there going down with it, right? So sometimes you have to use snitches, but you don't have to use them in every case. And, and one of the main cases that they're used now is drug cases. And again, in a city like D.C. or Baltimore, where so many of the young men um, are caught up in the criminal justice system because of drugs, uh, that gives every family an incentive to turn against every other family in some neighborhoods. So you know if, if you can tell what's going on at, at, at Mary's house, then maybe your boy, maybe he'll get to do less time. And it turns out it just undermines the social fabric of neighborhoods. So even in the video, you know that famous stop, don't be a you-know-what snitch, they make a distinction there. They say we're not talking about civilians. Civilians are people who dial 911 when they see a crime go down. There's nothing wrong with that, they say. That might actually make neighborhoods safer. But the concern is snitches, these paid people, and they just can't be trusted. It, it, it's amazing if you go back and look at that video. Uh, because it really does kind of lay it out. And, and it says they're tearing apart our neighborhoods. They're, they're, they're rats, it, it says. And, and again, one concern is that with the way that so many of our communities are occupied by police, but the police don't seem to be stopping the violent crime. You know, in D.C., yesterday we had this horrible incident where four people got killed. And they were interviewing someone on the news, and they, say, they said, you always see the police everywhere. And then when something like this goes down, they're not there. So there's this distrust of the police, and, and, and one of uh, the criminal justice system, um, and, and one of the dangerous directions that the stop snitching movement might take is to discourage people from ever cooperating with the police. And, and I think that that would be misguided. So in the book, um, I talk about how in the right context, the Don't Be a Snitch movement, it's just a patriotic intervention. It's just good old-fashioned um, talk about liberty. Um, but in the wrong, if we, if we look at it the wrong way, and it goes in this don't ever cooperate with the police in any situation, that's not going to help our communities um, be safe. So I, I try to um, spell out a, a, a way that it should work, a way that we should use that movement to help keep us safe and free. Michelle, did you want to briefly add yeah, anything? Yeah, I was just going to say, I absolutely love Paul's work in this area. Um, the, the writing that you've done around snitching and jury nullification, I think has contributed to folks' understanding of how the criminal justice system works and fails, um, and the role that we can play in resisting um, injustice in the system. And I would take it even a step further, because you know, as, as, as I see it, <coughs> Jury nullification, where you, you know, even if the evidence shows the person is technically guilty of the crime, you say not guilty anyway, that's jury nullification, as, as well as kind of resisting the whole switch, snitching thing, is a form of nonviolent resistance to a discriminatory caste system that has been posed in the United States. Um, you know, the war on drugs is not about rooting out violent drug kingpins. That's not what it's about. You know, despite what you might hear <laughs> from your politicians or, you know, whoever, um, the facts show that the drug war has never been um, focused on rooting out violent criminals or drug kingpins. 
Um, in fact, you know, in the 1990s, the greatest period of expansion of the drug war, nearly 80% of the increase in drug arrests was for marijuana possession, right? So four out of five drug arrests are for simple possession. Only one out of five are for sales. Um, most people in state prison for drug offenses today have no history of violence or significant selling activity. The drug war has really been about going in and rounding up particularly young men of color, shaking them down, frisking them on the street, searching their book bag on the way to school, pulling over their vehicles, ripping it apart, trying to find drugs, right? And hauling in these low-level, nonviolent offenders. That's what the drug war has been about. And so to say, as you know, a, a community member, I am no longer going to cooperate in this war that has been you know, waged in my community, that has not been designed for you know, my benefit or for public safety, but has merely been about targeting, branding, you know, young men of color in particular in mass, branding them felons and ushering them into permanent second class status. I'm not cooperating. And the form of my non-cooperation is that if I have the opportunity to serve on a jury and, you know, a young black man is, you know, facing charges for some minor drug possession case, I'm going to say not guilty. I am not cooperating with sending another young black man to prison for a minor drug offense that gets ignored when committed by whites. No, I'm not cooperating. I'm not snitching. I'm not sending my neighbor to prison. I'm not playing that game. Now, that, of course, as you say, that doesn't mean that if a violent crime <laughs> is suspected or someone is, you know, at risk of some injury that you wouldn't cooperate with the police to help, you know, ensure the safety of your community. Of course we would. But I think it's a perfectly legitimate, as you spell out really well in your book, form of nonviolent resistance to um, a racist system of control um, that is now, you know, impacting, um, you know, millions of folks of color in the United States. So let's. So you've gone to the heart of it. We're, let's get to jury nullification and other forms of resistance. And and this is a conversation we have very often in Baltimore. We have a a population in Baltimore City that is quite skeptical about police testimony, um, for example. Uh, and, um, you know, Paul, you've had um, more than a decade, I think, to address these um, issues because I guess your article about race and jury nullification was maybe the first law review article that you published. You couldn't start with something nice and calm. <laughs> uh, you had to start with something that made everybody crazy. Um, and I want you to be candid about what are the downsides of this. What you're saying sounds very provocative. Um, it, it sounds deeply problematic um, to prosecutors. It sounds deeply problematic to some people in the community who, who feel like, you know, this is going to make us less safe. Um, you know, tell us what the downsides are. Describe again what you mean by jury nullification and the class of cases in which you talk about it. And if you could, because I don't like people to think you just pull something out of the sky. True. Tell, tell what is the historical background and root of jury nullification. Where does it come from? Okay, so it's 1850, and you're on a jury in, let's say, Boston. And you have the chance of being raised by your two parents, more likely at this point. Exactly. Then. Okay, all right, go ahead. It, well, set it's the out, stage. I'm about to set the stage. I'm going to make everybody in the audience an honorary white man because 
Only white men could be on juries in Boston in 1850. Okay. So the people on trial are a black man and a white man who helped a slave escape to Canada. That's a crime. That crime, the Fugitive Violating the Fugitive Slave Act, has been um, affirmed as a constitutional crime by the Supreme Court in a case called Dred Scott. So you're on the jury. You take an oath to follow the law. The man, the black man and the white man, the slave's name was Shadrach. They said, you know what we did? Shadrach was in the courthouse. He was the subject of the proceeding to see who he belonged to, who to send him back to. Um, we walked in the courthouse. We took him up. We escorted him out of the courthouse. And we sent him on a plane. Uh, we, we put him on, a, on a, um, a train to Canada. So they admitted that they're guilty. So, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, I'm the judge now, I'm instructing you. You've taken an oath to follow the law. Um, these men have admitted that they're guilty. How many of you would vote to convict? Raise your hands. I usually get a, a couple, so we have one gentleman who would vote to convict. How many of you would acquit? Would say not guilty. So you've all just engaged in jury nullification. So I, I pretty much won my battle. Now I just have to persuade you that the criminal law didn't stop being unfair with the Fugitive Slave Act. Uh, I just have to persuade you that the law isn't made by God. It's made by people who are capable of being wrong sometimes. And when it's wrong under the Constitution, the juror has the power to correct it, at least to check the prosecution. So during application, Supreme Court says it's perfectly legal Jurors have the power to judge the law as well as the facts. And if they don't think the law is fair, then they don't have to apply it. So in the article that, that uh, Professor Eiffel referred to, uh, I made a recommendation about how jury nullification could be used in this war on drugs. And it got me my 15 minutes of fame. It got me my uh, interview by Mike Wallace on, on, on 60 Minutes, where he started out by saying, this is going to scare a lot of people. And it does. I mean, it, it, there are, as, as, professor, as the professor says, um, some concerns about it. So I'm not saying that it's perfect, but in Let's Get Free, I call for this strategy. I call for Martin Luther King jurors who, um, as Michelle says, would exercise this form of civil disobedience. I think it's actually a little bit better than civil disobedience because it's perfectly legal. But I ask jurors, if you're a juror in a, a, um, a drug case, and it's a nonviolent case. Um, you consider saying not guilty. Now, don't do it if someone has sold drugs to kids or someone's involuntarily, you know, intoxicated somebody else. But if it's the average drug case, then send a message that we're fed up with this selective war against black men and Latino men and black women and Latino women, that we're not going to take it anymore. Um, President Obama, he understands this. He says it's at Howard University um, before he was president. He oh. says it's blind and counterproductive. Yeah, it's an important caveat before he was president, right? He, he said it was blind and counterproductive to lock up the 500,000 nonviolent drug offenders. And I, I, I believe he wants us to hold him to that. He wants to be pressured. 
So just like sitting in at the lunch counters, that, that wasn't intended to be the only strategy to bring about the civil rights movement, right? They worked hand in hand with the NAACP, with lobbyists, with academics, uh, with activists, but it was part of the strategy. So what I'm suggesting is that strategic nullification, I'm calling for Martin Luther King jurors, be part of this strategy to hold President Obama, to hold the Congress, to hold Governor O'Malley um, to what they've said they're going to do. Michelle, if you had to identify one thing, we've heard about jury nullification, we've heard about stop snitching, if you had to identify one thing that people in communities could do to resist this mass incarceration uh, and to resist the current policies that are resulting in this unraveling in many communities, what would it be? I think the first and most important thing is for us to begin this conversation about how the criminal justice system is not a tool in our communities for public safety. It is a tool, it functions as a tool of racial control. That's what it is. And, you know, I wrote the book so that people could better understand the history of it, how it actually functions, and its impact. But if I had to pick one, one thing, I would say we need to begin to extend more care, compassion, concern to those who've been branded criminals and branded felons. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating, actually. The research shows that in communities that have been the hardest hit by mass incarceration, you know, communities where, you know, every house or every apartment or every other one has someone who's either behind bars or newly released from prison, that even in these communities hardest hit by mass incarceration, there is so much shame associated with being labeled a criminal or having your son or daughter being branded a criminal, that no one in this one study that was done in, in D.C., not one of the families had fully come out to their neighbors, their relatives, or loved ones about their own criminal status or their status of their loved ones. You know, during the Jim Crow era, you know, people would try to pass, light-skinned black folks, you know, try to pass as white to avoid the shame, stigma, and discrimination associated with race. Well, today, folks, you know, have been branded felons, they try to pass, right? by lying not just to employers and to housing officials about their criminal record, but to their friends, their coworkers, their family members, trying to hide, yeah, I've done time, or I've been labeled a criminal, or yeah, I'm a felon. And this silence, you know, this silence in the community's hardest hit by mass incarceration, kind of the refusal to talk openly about the fact that so many of us so many of our young people, so many of our family members have done time, been branded felons. This silence, I believe, is the greatest barrier to collective action to confront this new system of control and to bring it to an end. You know, we have internalized, I say we as African Americans and folks who have been targeted by the system, have internalized so many of the lies and myths about our nature and our culture. You know, I've been doing some interviews on black radio, and I'm fascinated by the fact that, you know, many of the hosts of these shows will kind of argue over and over, well, it's our fault, isn't it? If you didn't want to do the time, you shouldn't do the crime. You know, it's our fault if we've 
just didn't do drugs, if we just tried harder, wouldn't our folks be out of jail? And so there's a way in which I think that we've internalized this idea that we've brought this on ourselves and that we ourselves are to blame for the condition. Now, believe me, I, I think we all have to accept personal responsibility for our own behavior and our own mistakes, right? But the reality is none of us are perfect, right? We've all made mistakes. Every one of us in this room is a criminal. There's nobody in this room who hasn't violated the law, right? You sped on the freeway, you had a couple drinks before getting behind the wheel, if you've experimented with illegal drugs, you, we've all broken the law at some point or another. We're all criminals, but only some of us do time. Only some of us get branded. And that's what this is about. It's about the fact that a group of people defined largely by race have been branded criminals and forced to suffer shame, stigma and a life of discrimination for the exact same stuff that kids in other communities do and trot off to college. So I think we've got to stop feeling ashamed and embarrassed and encouraging those who've been branded felons. It's okay to talk about it, to share your experience, and hopefully our churches and community centers can begin to be a place where we begin to talk about what this has meant for our families, for our communities, and begin to organize um, to end not just mass incarceration, right, but the history of racial caste in America. Because if we aren't able to muster as a nation genuine care, compassion, and concern for those folks, as Derek Bell would say, who are at the bottom of the well, we can't manage to do that. Even if mass incarceration passes away, a new system of control will emerge. Just as Jim Crow replaced slavery and mass incarceration replaced Jim Crow, a new system of control that we can't predict or foresee just as this system couldn't even be predicted by anybody just 30 years ago, something new will take its place if we haven't managed um, to extend kind of that care, compassion, and concern to the least of these um, as a nation. Thank you. Well, we're going to get ready to open it up for questions. Where's Judy Cooper? Yes? Yes? So start thinking. Start thinking. Okay. Okay. So while you're organizing your thoughts and very quietly excusing yourself and thinking of your question, let me ask Paul Butler, what, 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 what's a hip-hop theory of justice? That's the name of the book. Let's Get Free, A Hip-Hop Theory of Justice. And I, and I recall in the book that you said hip-hop culture differs from civil rights culture. Tell me what you mean by that. So... I agree with everything Michelle said about us not talking about the two and a half million people, the one million African American people who are locked up now with one exception, hip hop. Hip hop is the only form of pop culture that acknowledges that there are a million African American people locked up and it sends that love and respect. So Jay-Z, uh, the greatest hip hop artist alive. He has a song. He has a song where he says, "If you're locked in the penitentiary, I'm going to send you some energy. You're a winner to me." President Obama says he likes Jay Z. He's his favorite um, um, hip hop artist. Angie Stone says um, to all my brothers behind bars, "Angie loves you." So hip hop catalogs the the 
cost of our criminal justice, justice system. And it sends this message, yeah, punish people if you must. If they're going to hurt other people, then they need to be locked up. Um, but think about, again, what we've been talking about, the effects on the community. You know, you can watch all these TV shows and movies about vampires, and you never know that there are two and a half million people locked up. You can't listen to urban radio longer than 30 minutes. So I think if we listen to hip-hop, uh, we get some important information about the criminal justice system. The people who create it, young black men by and large, they're the most incarcerated group in the history of the world. There's never been a group that's experienced their level of incarceration. So we need to listen to what they're reporting uh, about how to make things safer. I'm just going to end by getting real kind of theoretical for a moment. There's this philosopher named Rawls, John Rawls, who says that law would be best if it's made by people who don't know who they're going to be in society. You don't know if you're going to be rich or poor, gay or straight, man or woman, citizen or immigrant. With criminal justice, that's who the hip-hop community is. It consists of people who are most likely to be victims of crime. So they're very concerned about safety, and you hear that in their music, but also most likely to be accused. So they're very concerned about being fair to other people. And so it turns out, and I talk about this in a chapter in the book, there's all this really important insight about how a criminal justice system and a hip-hop nation would work and how it would be better than ours. Now, it's hard to make a moral claim about hip-hop overall, especially when some of the commercial stuff has so many negative images about women and our, our gay and lesbian sisters and brothers. But with criminal justice, it's worth listening to. Great. Let's, before we even take questions, just give a round of applause to both Michelle and Paul. So let's get our first question. I can't see. Let me get up. Well, that's an excellent question, and you know, one of the things that you know we haven't talked about so far is that the drug war has coincided with the collapse of inner-city economies. That you know, back in the 1950s, you know, as bad as things were, um, the areas that we think of as ghettos today were actually doing quite well economically. You know, people were suffering severe racial discrimination. But at least they had jobs, right? Um, well, that changed practically overnight. Um, the factories that were located near many urban areas that you know, were located near urban areas because they wanted access to cheap labor, right? Those factories closed down and moved overseas. And in an incredibly short period of time, suddenly, you know, huge populations uh, were jobless. You know, in fact, you know, as late as 1970, in a city like Chicago, about 70% of black men had industrial employment, factory jobs. By 1982, when the drug war kicked off, that figure had plummeted to 27%. Right? Hundreds of thousands of people were suddenly out of work. Right? Well, no longer needed to pick cotton in the fields or labor in factories. Black and brown folks were rounded up in droves and locked behind bars. Now you say, well, why doesn't the government provide jobs for these folks? 
you know, once they're released from prison, it would make sense, <laughs> right? It would make sense if you wanted people to actually, you know, do well on the outside and, you know, make it and not be forced into the Ill illegal economy or to commit other crimes. It would make sense to ensure that they had a job, right? But no, the government, you know, to date has shown very little interest in, in guaranteeing employment for anyone, much less those um, who have been branded criminals. Um, and so kind of the failure of the government to respond in a meaningful way to this crisis caused where, you know, every year close to 700,000 people are released from prison and returned to their communities. 700,000 people, right? That's a lot of folks who are out of work and need employment. Um, so it would be no small thing for the government to make a commitment of that kind. But one of the reasons why I believe it's so crucial for us to transition away from kind of a civil rights movement and civil rights rhetoric to human rights is because we need to begin thinking about the basic human rights um, that all folks are entitled to, including the human right to work, <laughs> the human right to shelter, human rights to education and health care that are denied um, to folks who have been labeled criminals. Um, so your point is an excellent one, um, but I think we as a nation have not yet made a commitment to ensuring um, that folks who've been branded criminals can make it um, on the outside. In fact, you know, if you're gonna take a look at the system and say, what is it designed well to do? It's not designed well to help people make it on the outside. It's designed well to ensure that they remain in what you know, one sociologist calls kind of this closed circuit of perpetual marginality of folks cycling in and out of prison. Yeah. And, and just real quickly, before we let the fast food um, employers off the hook too easily, because that's what my mom says, right, when she sees the, the guys in the corner, well, why don't they just get a job at McDonald's? It turns out it's actually hard to get a job at McDonald's. <laughs> you know, if, if you're a, a fresh-faced 19-year-old from, from Bowie State or Morgan State, um, University of Baltimore is not hard, but if you're a 30-year-old with a 10-year gap in your resume um, and checking that box, um, it's hard. Next up. He's grinning, and he loves to hear that. <laughs> Whether or not, as an attorney, it is a crime for you to advocate that a juror violate his or her oath that they take before a trial. So I wanted to know your perspective on that, and if you would go so far as to say that if we're an obstruction of justice, the person or the attorney should, you know, go and be arrested. Um, well, first of all, I, I don't think it's a crime because I, I understand that jury nullification is a power that's afforded to um, jurors by the Constitution. And the various courts that have looked at uh, nullification, they've all acknowledged that it's a power um, that jurors have. Now, every court doesn't like it. The D.C. Circuit says it's appropriate occasional medicine, so it shouldn't be done all the time, but it's okay in something like, for example, the putative slave cases. So at the end of the day, I don't think that there's anything um, legally wrong in terms of the professional canons about my advocacy of nullification. Um, 
But at the end of the day, um, I'm here to get my sisters and brothers out of prison um, who don't belong there, and when it's not doing them any good or our community any good. So if the legal ethics were going to stand in the way, um, that wouldn't stop me. Sure, and I appreciate your, your thinking um, so thoughtfully about, about my thesis. Um, so, again, just like the sit-ins um, at the lunch counters weren't the only thing that brought about the um, Civil Rights Revolution, um, nullification is a tool in an arsenal. And, and everybody um, didn't sit in. You know, I'm talking so big and bad right now. I'm not sure. Back in the day, the day was 1960 in North Carolina. I would have had the courage to do what some of my heroes did, people like John Lewis. I, I don't know. And now everybody's not going to want to nullify. So in Let's Get Free, I recommend seven different kinds of interventions that you can take. Um, one thing that you can do is help a kid graduate from high school. The, the guys on the corner, the dope boys, they haven't graduated from high school. If you're a black or Latino man and you don't graduate from high school, that's a ticket to jail. Baltimore, you got big trouble because 60%, 60% of your young men are not graduating from high school. So again, if you don't want to nullify, help that kid graduate. Uh, teach a, a father how to be a father. That's something that our churches know how to do, right? We got tons, as Michelle said, of great fathers and mothers in churches. And, and there are babies having babies. They want to know how to be good parents. We know how to teach them that. So there's a range of options other than nullification. Can I just add to that also, um, because I've been part of an initiative that was started by the Open Society Institute called the Campaign for Black Male Achievement. Uh, and it's um, an effort to try and shore up you know, all of the efforts to do those very things. It's got an education piece to deal with you know, the, the parts of No Child Left Behind that, um, that credit certain kinds of things. So for example, if you get credit for um, ensuring that you know your students uh, all graduate, but you don't get demerits for the fact that people get kicked out of school, um, you basically created a system in which you are incentivizing certain kinds of ways of treating certain kinds of students. Uh, instead of uh, providing incentives to ensure that people can teach every child, instead of crediting attendance and so forth. So there are uh, institutional aspects of laws like No Child Left Behind, but there are also uh, aspects that go to providing support for parenting and fatherhood. Um, Professor Alexander talked about men being incarcerated and having child support payments accruing while they're incarcerated. Um, and we've worked here in, in Maryland to try and address that situation. Now remember, you know, people get very upset and they say, well, when he gets out, he's got to pay that child support back to the woman. The child support is paid back to the state. It's to reimburse the state for having to pay for the woman to be on uh, AFDC and so forth. Well, I guess that's an old term, AFDC, TANF, and so forth. So, so we've been working with ways to try and think through what kinds of credits people can get while they're incarcerated. Obviously, if you're incarcerated, you, are not, you don't have an income. Uh, and so that's just crazy. You're just basically setting up a failure. So these are some of the interventions that we can engage in to try and think through how to take some of the insanity out of some of these policies, because some of them just simply don't make sense. Um, and so 
you know, there isn't going to be a magic bullet, as, as both professors are saying. There are a number of different pieces. You know, there's opening that conversation, getting rid of the shame, talking openly, jury nullification, helping people graduate, you know, especially young black and brown men graduate from high school, dealing with the whole education piece, um, helping support fatherhood uh, initiatives and so forth. And it's at every intervention, I think, there has to be that willingness and that commitment to understand that without all of those pieces, it's not going to work. Um, you know, now, and that's not to, to also um, not suggest that there's not a political piece to this, you know, to, to raise consciousness and to, to fight at the ballot box and so forth against um, leaders who support these kinds of repressive policies. But we have to be willing to intervene at every step of the way and not make the problem be just one about law, right, uh, just one about education, just one about personal responsibility. You know, this is our, this is our lazy social justice discourse. We want a magic bullet instead of recognizing that we have to be doing many things at the same time. So I would just add that. Thank you, Sally. Next. Good evening. Uh, first, I'd say just thank you for all your work on uh, these different subjects. Uh, I mean, I think it's just uh, living in Baltimore City, uh, you see the effects of both of uh, your topics. And I'm glad to see Professor Eichel doing the folks other than me. It's my <laughs> student. <laughs> uh, and so I said, living in Baltimore City, and I actually went to high school with sort of see uh, just the you know, how where folks live uh, affects both of these topics. And last week I was here for a different author with a different uh, with the with these two talking about the uh, racist uh, practices of housing in Baltimore City. Not in my neighborhood. It's the name it's the name of the book. talk that much in class, I just want to say. <laughs> you know, I think that one of the key things we've got to do is shift from a mentality of kind of piecemeal policy reform. Let's try to fix education over here. Let's try to fix housing policy over here. Let's try to tinker with the criminal justice system over here. We've got to shift from a mentality of kind of piecemeal policy reform. Instead, think about movement building. That what we need to do is build a movement, a racial justice movement, that will end caste as it exists in America today. And I use the term caste deliberately because it, I think, conveys that 
for an enormous percentage of black and brown communities, they're locked by law in inferior second class status. Now, the ways in which the laws operate to lock people in inferior second class status operate differently in education, in housing, in criminal justice, right? But they all operate to lock people of color in a permanent second class status. And so I think we need to begin to see the interconnectedness of these forms of, of discrimination and kind of awaken from this colorblind slumber, you know, especially since Obama's election. You know, we're constantly being told, and many of us believe, <laughs> we've triumphed over race. You know, we've triumphed over race, and now, you know, it's just a matter of each one of us pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps and doing the best we can. So we've got to wake up from that and begin the process of movement building. Um, which I think when we begin to think about what it means to build a movement, it's very different than having conversations about how do we fix this policy over here, how do we fix that policy over there. Um, so I think that's kind of the shift that needs to happen in our collective consciousness, that we're not just tinkering with the system here. We're not trying to make a better mousetrap in the criminal justice system. We're not trying to just make our schools a little bit better than they were last year. And we're building a movement for racial justice, to eliminate all forms of caste that continue to persist in the United States today. And, and the Hip Hop Nation has great potential to be part of that movement. So it's this extraordinary, it's the most multi, multicultural form of, of art in, in our society. Most of the um, best-selling artists are African-American or Latino, but they're also important white and Asian-American artists. Of the consumers, 70% of people who buy hip-hop music and fashion are, are what? What am I going to say? 70%, yeah, 70 are, are white. So again, this incredible kind of multicultural hip-hop nation that really does have the power to transform things. Hip-hop is cataloging how neighborhoods are destroyed um, by crime and by punishment. And it's thoughtful about that. And it's doing it in a way it's laying it down on track. So it's not, there is art music, right, political conscious music. But again, you can listen to um, WPGC and get the same critique of the state. So I think if we're thoughtful about it, and it's true um, that there are guys who are more conscious and women who are, 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 are less conscious, um, but it's not that kind of black or white. So even Lil Wayne, the best-selling current artist, um, who, if you listen to some of his songs, he just says some knucklehead things and, and does some knucklehead things. But on his latest album, um, he's got this song, Misunderstood, where he talks about the crack laws. And he does this, it's almost like reading the new Jim Crow. He has these amazing statistics about how many blacks are locked up for this crime and why it's only enforced in um, black neighborhoods and not in the suburbs. And he's doing this in a best-selling album, an album that's nominated for Grammy of the Year. So there's a, a lot of potential there. Again, and all these artists, all these genres, trap, crunk, uh, left coast, bling, bling, dirty south, they're all saying the same things about criminal justice. So I couldn't talk about a hip hop perspective on abortion or immigration. Hip hop thinks about those things, but it's all over the place. Uh, on the critique of criminal justice, all saying the same thing. So, you know, uh, my dad was an actor. I, I believe in the transformative power of art. And, and I think that these women and men are, are on to something important. Now, this is not to knock the whispers or the Ohio players <laughs> who <laughs> do not have a critique. Hey, Parker, yeah. up just because, uh, you know, we, we were saying that hip-hop has a, a, you know, a role to play, and we 
want to get uh, as many people involved in this sort of a you know, movement as we can. Um, and so we want to sort of try to fill this room here today like it was last week. Uh, how can we get more of the, uh, and just from your perspective, how can we get more of this uh, message into, you know, not just on, you know, uh, WEAA, but on PGC, and not just on off hours when, you know, the commercial state, commercial, I guess, entities aren't uh, dominating the, you know, the top 40, uh, you know, spins for the hour. Well, I think, again, it really goes back to initiating these conversations in as many different forms and venues as possible. And, you know, it's not going to happen easily or overnight, but I think it really begins with consciousness raising. You know, and, you know, it, I find it so helpful for me personally to go back and read about kind of the early stages of the civil rights movement. You know, I think it gets so romanticized, you know, the idea that in the early days of the civil rights movement that, you know, black people just rose up, you know, <laughs> against Jim Crow and the system came tumbling down when, in fact, no, actually, when civil rights activists first started, you know, going into the South and talking to folks about the need to, to protest Jim Crow, they faced a lot of resistance from the black community itself, saying, no, we can't shake things up, no, we move too fast, no, it'll be more trouble um, than it's worth. No, things aren't ever going to change. This is just the way it is. Um, and there was a process of consciousness raising, of slowly but surely having these conversations in different forms and you know, spreading the word, and then having you know, small numbers of courageous people being willing to take bold action against the system in ways that illustrated its injustice. And so I think, again, if we think about it in terms of movement building, the first step is consciousness raising, um, beginning these conversations in our schools, in our communities, our neighborhoods, in our churches, um, and then beginning to organize to take bold action um, to, 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 to dramatize the injustice of the system. Let me add to that also by saying that I am a strong believer that everybody should be part of a reading group. And while I'm, I don't knock, um, you know, Zane or um, Jan Levanzant, uh, I think that um, I had the experience of being part of a, 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 what we call the racial reality, changing racial realities reading group for two years. And I think I know a lot about race, but it was an amazing experience. And I was in this group with people who were living around the country. We would meet um, not often, you know, once a year, um, but we talked a lot on the phone. And, you know, we developed our thinking because there's so much we don't, we think we know everything about race, but you don't know anything about what, you know, is going on with gypsies in Europe. So you don't really know everything about race, you know. So there's a lot for us to learn. So, for example, Aaron, I would suggest, you know, people don't have to be here. Now you know about these books. These two books would make a great companion set for a reading group that you have developed with friends, colleagues in your church, in your community center, among your frat brothers, and so forth to begin to talk about some of these issues. And I think it goes to Michelle's point about, you know, we watch all these new reels, news reels from the civil rights movement and we see these rooms packed with people. The rooms were not always packed with people, especially not in the beginning. Uh, and, you know, we have to take responsibility within the community where we live and work for doing the thinking work, not just the doing work, but the thinking work. And that's why books like these are so important because it pulls together all the inchoate pieces that you kind of know instinctively or think you know and it debunks some myths that you maybe believed, 
uh, and gets you kind of really thinking about solutions. So I don't think it's necessary, and I go to a lot of events and I do a lot of events. I never care whether there's two people there or whether there's 200 people there. I'm convinced that those two people, you know, can pay it forward. And so that's the job of all of us here is to pay it forward. And one of the ways to do that is to be part, I just, I say this to everyone, I say it to white people a lot, I say it to black people a lot. If you care about and you think about issues of race, you should be part of a racial reading group. You don't have to meet all the time, you don't have to read 100 books a year, you can read four books a year. Um, but you should be really educating yourself. A lot of us think we know um, more than we actually do know. And it's a way to really keep the juices going and, and, keep, and provide the undergirding for that movement that Michelle's talking about. Yes? Are you sure? Maybe they could each they could answer all their questions together. I tell you what, let's air, why don't we air all their questions? Let's just hear what the questions are. Okay? One, two, three. Okay, let's hear all the questions and then maybe we can answer them as we leave. Great. Um, my question has to do with uh, kind of practical politics. Um, our, in Maryland, our House Judiciary Chairman has been in office for 35 years. In Baltimore, our state's attorney has been in office for 15 years. We have many, many city council reps who have been on the council for 10, 15, <coughs> even as long as 30 years. Um, these people have failed uh, our city. And yet, the very people who they're failing continue to re-elect them and re-elect them and re-elect them. And it seems that it's very hard to communicate the message that you guys are doing such a beautiful job of sharing with us today uh, to the voters and getting the very people who are going to be impacted by these so-called leaders to take action and replace them with and my question is, what does that message have to be? How do you think we can best reach the voter to ask them to make a better decision? Thank you. Third question. Hi, I'm Regina Holmes. I'm the editor and... Hey, Regina. Okay, I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and select from those questions. One question to end on, and then in the colloquy, if you come to the book table, maybe you can get an answer to your other questions. What are you most optimistic about? Each of you, quickly, if anything. I, I'm actually incredibly optimistic um, about the work 
that's being done today by formerly incarcerated people who are organizing for their civil and human rights. Um, there are some fantastic new organizations that are formed. All of us are none is one of them. In fact, if you, you know, go on their website, allofusarenone.org, um, they're an organization of formerly incarcerated people that are forming chapters around the country. For people who are released from prison, you can join and become part of organizing efforts to eliminate all forms of discrimination against people who have been labeled felons. And they are winning <laughs> in some states. They've banned the box on employment applications in New Mexico successfully. They've banned the box on employment applications in a number of other states. And they are aiming to you know, take on housing discrimination against people who have um, felony records as well. And so I'm just incredibly encouraged by the fact that, you know, finally, we have folks who, um, you know, have been most harmed by the system who are becoming very politically active and um, realize they can take their destiny in their own hands. And I hope that civil rights organizations and, you know, um, um, and, and, and the leadership um, of, of you know, African-American community and Latino community will really rally behind folks who are doing this um, organizing work um, in conjunction with, I should say, some of the youth groups that are doing really uh, inspiring work. You know, take, for example, the walkouts that are happening in California, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. students protesting the funding of prisons rather than schools and arguing, you know, we want books, not bars for our future. So I think there's a lot of promising mm -hmm. um, developments out there, particularly among youth and formerly incarcerated people who are beginning the organizing and consciousness raising um, work that, that we've talked about tonight. Professor Butler? Yeah, and, and I, I'm optimistic about this moment. I mean, we have a, a president who's closer to getting it than any other president that we've had. Does he need to be pushed? Hell yeah. Uh, who's going to push him? The people in this room. So I'm optimistic about the energy that I feel from you. I think in, in terms of talking about criminal justice on a beautiful spring night, I'm glad to see so many of you here. I, I appreciate um, your being here. So this is a, a great moment. And, and, this, and the other thing I'm optimistic about, and this kind of answers the questions about policy and politicians, how you move them, there is this movement, even among prosecutors, about being smart on crime. So getting away from the idea of locking them up, going away the key, the, the slogans that Regina mentioned, like zero tolerance and three strikes, and, and just understanding that what Michelle and Cheryl Lynn and I are talking about, it's about public safety. It's about ways to keep your neighborhoods safe. So if we're smarter, if we do things that make more sense than just locking up people, um, not only will we be more free, not only will we treat people more fairly, um, but we'll be safer, and again, this message is getting out, and we need everybody here tonight to, to help um, other people understand. So thank you very much for coming. So please join me once again in thanking Michelle Alexander and Paul Butler.